like to welcome all those of you who are with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, which gives us one of the great prayers of Scripture, the, the prayer of King Solomon on the occasion of the temple's dedication. So turn in 1 Kings chapter 8. Well, that's better, isn't it? Sounds better from up here. First uh, Kings chapter eight. Uh, we will read. We will look especially at verses twenty-two through fifty-three. We'll read those and we'll read those selectively. That's uh, a long chapter. First uh, Kings eight twenty-two. Let's hear God's word together. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven... And the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listening to the cry and to the the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance." If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each one Uh, to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of the people of Israel comes 
from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear the foreigner uh, in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel uh, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Jump to 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which you have been, they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers to the city that you have chosen, and the house that I've built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought out our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord our God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we confess with Solomon that you are incomparable and that there is no one like you in heaven or on earth. You are incomparable in goodness, giving even the life of your son, Jesus Christ, for our redemption. You are incomparable in power, in wisdom. God, there is no one like you. Teach us the fear of the Lord. Grant us to stand in awe of you and your greatness and majesty all the days of our lives that we might live rightly, wisely, and reverently. Father, as we meditate on your word this morning, as we hear your voice through Holy Scripture, grant us to stand in awe of you, to be freshly amazed by the glory of our God, your exaltation, greatness, but also the depth of your mercy and compassion to us sinners. Thank you, Lord, that in grace and kindness you have redeemed us. You've washed us of our guilt and shame and sin and brought us singing and rejoicing back to you through your son, Jesus. Cause our hearts, Lord, to rejoice in you this morning. Uh, speak to us through your life-giving word, we ask. Amen. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73 first half of that psalm is this uh, anguished attempt by the writer to figure out why the wicked seem to prosper. They go from strength to strength. They seem to be healthy. They have great material prosperity. They eat well, so much so that their eyes bulge out through fatness. And he seeks to walk with the Lord and is afflicted every day. What's going on? And he doesn't know how to sort this out. He's looking at the world. It doesn't make any sense. How do we even begin to think about this? First half of the psalm. But then his perspective changes. Everything shifts right in the middle of the psalm. When he goes to the temple, when he brings God into the picture, the world looks very different. The crucial verses are uh, verses 16 and 17 where he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That's his initial response. It seemed, well, you can't get to the bottom of this confusing reality. Then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Coming to the temple, 
the sanctuary, the place where God is, coming to worship him had a clarifying effect. He saw things more clearly. Uh, and and that's, that's what happens when you see God for who he is. You know the truth about God and you live in light of it. You see things as they really are. It's like putting on glasses. The world comes into sharper focus. You leave God out of the equation, you're perplexed, confused, don't know how to live. You bring God into the picture uh, and things are more sharply focused. We can see uh, more clearly who God, who God is, but our situation in light of him. And this passage, this wonderful passage of scripture, one of the high points in First and Second Kings, uh, reveals a great deal about God includes several significant affirmations about God. There's so, there's so many riches here that we won't even uh, touch, but we will note these three core affirmations about the Lord. Number one, the Lord is dependable. The Lord is dependable. Number two, the Lord is exalted yet near. Exalted yet near. High but close. And number three, the Lord is compassionate. Uh, now, before we dive in and start to unpack all of this, it's helpful to get just the big picture. Uh, what's the, what, is this, what is the organization of this chapter? First 11 verses, which we didn't read of this chapter, describe how the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that container with the uh, cherubim, the angelic figures on top of it, that has the, the law inside of it, that Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple that Solomon has constructed. And there's an emphasis in those opening verses on covenant. This is a crucial biblical idea, covenant, new covenant, old covenant. In essence, covenant is a relationship. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's at the heart of covenant. Covenant is a structured relationship. It describes, God tells his people specifically how he will relate to them, uh, what he has done for them and how he will act. But the covenant also describes their responsibilities before him. The, the, uh, the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant sums up their relationship, sums up what God calls them to be and to do. It describes what faithfulness looks like on their end. And even though this takes place, what, 480 years before, uh, after God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel at Sinai, that covenant, that relationship that is defined by the law continues to structure God's relationship with his people centuries later. The, the, the terms are the same. In a sense, there's a new chapter. Israel now has rest from her enemies. But the terms of the relationship are the same. And we who, through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, have entered into the new covenant, or have a relationship with our Lord through Jesus, and that covenant was established 2,000 years ago, uh, the terms of that covenant continue to define our relationship with the Lord. Uh, generations of believers come and go on the face of this earth. Uh, but we need to understand that these documents that God has given to us in Scripture continue to define our relationship with Him in every generation. Uh, we should keep that in, in mind when we hanker after novelty, newness, right? Let's, let's do things different. This generation requires something different. Now, of course, every generation of believers has to reflect on its context and how to apply Scripture to it and the gospel to it. Uh, but we also recognize that there is continuity. There's covenant that structures the relationship of God with his people. First 11 verses of the chapter. Uh, and then you have a benediction before the prayer. Uh, God is praised for his faithfulness in verses 12 through 21. Then you have the body of the prayer, verses 22 through 43. Um, interestingly, we'll come back to this. Many of the curses in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, God says, this is what's going to happen to you if you disobey. Solomon alludes to those. 
which is perhaps not what you'd expect on a very festive occasion when the temple is being uh, consecrated. There's quite a lot about sin. We'll talk about that. Uh, so that's the body of the prayer. And then there's a second benediction, verses 54 through 61. Uh, Solomon pronounces a blessing on, on God's people. And then there are sacri- copious sacrifices, there's feasting, and there's celebration, verses 62 through 66. But a, a theme that runs through this whole prayer, including all the different sections of it, is the idea of God's dependability and trustworthiness. God is a rock. Uh, look at verse 15. And the wording that appears in verse 15 will appear again in, later in the prayer. Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his mouth. One commentator says there's no gap between the words that come out of God's mouth and what he does with his hands. We're fickle, aren't we? <laughs> we, we so often say one thing. If you're parents, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you mean well. We say one thing and we do another. Or if, if you're the kind of personality that's very social, you're often eager to engage with people. Yeah, let's get together, let's get together, let's get together. And you forget there's finite time and energy. Like, oh, man, I don't want to get together with everybody that I committed to. We're, we're fickle, right? So you, you, it comes from a good place. You want to connect with people. Um, but human beings can often be fickle. Or even if they're not fickle, circumstances beyond our control can rear their head and keep us from doing what we say we're going to do. God is not like that. What he says with his mouth, he does with his hand. He's completely dependable. He's a rock. It's a great expression. And again, that same expression uh, appears again in the prayer. Look at verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now notice the emphasis on God fulfilling his promises to to David. Uh, God made two promises to David. There's going to be one of your descendants on the throne. That's Solomon. And that descendant is going to build a house for my name, the temple. And Solomon, as he's looking at this temple, which is now completed, recognizes that he occupies the throne of Israel. He says, you've done it, Lord. You said you would do it. You said that you'd establish a son. You said that he would build the temple. And look, you've been faithful. You've done exactly what you said you would do. Your hand has done what your mouth has said. And look at the beginning of the prayer. So we move from the benediction to the prayer itself. Notice the the way Solomon refers to God. Verse 23. O Lord, God of Israel... There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. God is incomparable, unique, holy. But then notice the specific way in which God is incomparable. No one's like you, keeping covenant and steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. So God is incomparable and unique, but he is incomparable, especially in that he is incomparably faithful. There is no one who is is as dependable as God. He is a rock for his people. It's especially significant in the pagan context in which Israel lived and this was written. Uh, The gods of the pagans were capricious. You couldn't count on them. They would often say one thing and do another, and of course, there were multiple gods, so if, you know, one god more powerful and wise than the other god could interfere. You never quite knew what the gods would do. 
I mean, you needed to offer sacrifices because then for sure they'd get you. Uh, but even if you did offer sacrifices, you, you, know, you have to hope for the best. The gods of the nations, the idols, they don't, their word can't be trusted. They're fickle. They don't have a rock like our rock, but Solomon is saying that the Lord is uniquely dependent. It's his glory to be loyal to his people. And then you see in the, the final benediction, if you go to verse 56, that same idea. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. So earlier he says, God, you've fulfilled all the promises that you made to David. And then he says, God, you fulfilled all the promises that you made to Moses. You promised through Moses that your people would have rest. And lo and behold, we have rest. Not one word has failed. You build your life on the word of God and you're building your life on a solid foundation. No one who trusts in the words of God and in the character of God will ever be put to shame. You're building your life on solid ground. Uh, many years ago, my wife Stephanie and I, many years ago, did, uh, we were kayaking. Uh, we were part of a group, we were kayaking, and we were kayaking in this little narrow watery channel. And uh, you had one row of kayaks going out and another ro row of kayaks going in. It's one of those two-person kayaks. So we're going, and somebody comes from behind us and bumps us. And so we start moving towards the mangroves. And Stephanie's in the front, I'm in the back. So she tries to stabilize the kayak. And she sees this branch, and it looks firm. It looks like she can uh, lay hold of it, and it'll stop us, and then we can pivot, redirect, go where we need to go. Uh, but she puts her hands up, lays hold of that branch, and instead of being firm and staying in place, it begins to peel back. It begins to bend. The kayak keeps moving, the branch is being peeled back, and of course she lets go. And being in the back, I've got one of two choices. I can just take it like a man to the face, uh, or I can, <laughs> I can move this way, and we capsize, which is what we did. We capsized. <laughs> we capsized. Uh, and then we tried to scurry back in, which we did successfully, praise God. Now, uh, God's word is unlike that branch. It doesn't peel back. It doesn't bend and break. You lay hold of God's word, and you're on solid ground. It, it, it holds you fast. It keeps you. There is no wavering with it. And what that means is that we need to learn, given God, the dependability of God's character and his word, we need to learn how to build our lives on his truth and not our feelings. This is one of the fundamental lessons we need to learn as Christians. We've got to build our lives on the word of God and it, what it says about us and about God and the world and not on how we feel. We live in a culture that really highlights, emphasizes feelings, right? I was listening to an interviewer um, inter and interviewee recently who made the observation that you think about the conversations that people have with uh, athletes after a game, right? They win, they win a big game and the question is inevitably, how do you feel? Okay, how do you feel? But it's, it's rarely, how, what, do you, what do you think about your achievement? How do you think about this? No, it's, what is your emotional state? And that, that tends to be the, the world we live in. How do you feel about things? And that bleeds in, even into the church. And if we feel that God is far away and distant and not listening to prayers, we believe that that's the truth about our relationship with God. Our feelings determine what's true and false. And God's word corrects us there and says, no, no, no. God's word 
precisely because it's dependable and true in everything that it affirms, God's word tells you what is true and false, not your emotions. Your emotions are not an infallible guide to what is true and what is false. Your emotions, just like your thoughts, can be misleading. If you want to know the truth, look at God's word and let that define things. And so often as you walk with the Lord, what you need to do is frankly not listen to your feelings at all, but remind yourself of the truth. When you feel God is far away, not listening to your prayers, distant and aloof, what you need to do is get a hold of yourself and say, no, God has covenanted with me. He has pledged, I will be your God and you will be my people. I trust the word of God more than I do my feelings. And so what we need in those moments is defiant faith. I don't care how I feel. I feel beat up and forsaken. Who cares? God said he's my God. That's what I believe. That's where I plant my feet. But so often in our unbelief, we listen to those negative thoughts. We give in to them. Rather than preaching to ourselves, we listen to those negative thoughts and we slide further and, and, and further into um, you know, various spiritual challenges. God's word is dependable. If his character is dependable, then we need to learn how to build our lives on his word not our feelings. Second thing, though, that we see about God in this passage is that he is exalted, majestic, high, but he draws near to his people. Look at verses 27 through 29. Uh, it's striking, isn't it, that having taken seven years to build this temple, and it's got gold everywhere, as we've seen, and it's, it's, it's really a masterpiece. One of the first things uh, that Solomon says about it, look at verse 27, is this. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. So all of this effort, all of this timber from Lebanon, all of the gold, all of the craftsmanship, God, what is this? Uh, not even the hev highest heavens can contain you. Certainly, what is this house? The universe can't contain you. You're exalted over everything. Do we really think that you, this little house can box you up? Do we really think that through this temple we can somehow control you? No. Heaven can't contain you. You are exalted over your creation. You are transcendent, majestic, and great. Yet, so he affirms the transcendence of God. And we always need to keep that in mind. God is not one of us. In the incarnation, Jesus has become one of us. That's true. But according to his divine nature, he is exalted, incomprehensible, high above us. Yet, here's the balancing affirmation. Despite being exalted, he draws near. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. Listen to the prayers that are offered to the, in this house and to this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be here. So God, you're exalted above it. It can't continue. And yet you have been pleased in your grace and kindness to identify with this temple, to put your name here, to put your presence here. Uh, I'm asking, Lord, that you would hear the prayers that come to this temple. Have your ears open and your eyes open to the prayers that are offered to you. God is exalted, majestic, high, and yet, as Solomon recognizes in his prayer, he is pleased to draw near to his people. He is pleased to come down and lower himself, to enter into a relationship with his people. 
I like the way Peter Lightheart captures this. In his commentary, he writes, In the temple, Yahweh comes near. The Lord comes near. He does not remain at a distance to hear prayer and to flick a distant switch. He enters into Israel's space to open his eyes and ears to their cries and to stretch out the arms of his temple toward his people. God is exalted, but in the temple, he draws near. Earlier in the chapter, we see how his cloud fills up the temple. It's a, bit, a little bit like um, a professor of astrophysics who spends his days thinking about the stars, the galaxies, uh, the, the vast distances between one star and another. Then he comes home to his little two-year-old girl. Now, that two-year-old girl can't even begin to conceive what her dad thinks about all day the planets and the stars there is so much about the outer reaches of his thought that she can't even begin to understand and yet when he comes home what does he do he lowers himself to her level he uses words that she can understand uh, they open up a picture book together and they look at the animals and they name the animals uh, he, he plays with her tosses her up in the air and catches her, sings to her when he puts her down. In other words, he comes down. He doesn't talk to her about the stars. Instead, he comes down to her level and he speaks to her on her terms. He lowers himself for the sake of the relationship because he loves his little girl. And in an analogous way, because God loves his people, though he is exalted and great, he comes down that there might be a relationship between creature and creator, savior and sinner. That's what the temple shows us here. That's what the Solomon is getting at. God who is exalted draws near through his temple. Now, if you're reading this as a Christian, and there's this idea of God who is unimaginably great, coming down and entering into a temple for the sake of drawing near to his people, does that remind you of anything? Does it feel like this is familiar territory. What is it saying about God? He's exalted and draws near. Well, what we should see in this passage is an anticipation of the incarnation. Isn't it just like God? Isn't that what the Old Testament is saying? Isn't it just like God? Isn't this exactly the kind of God he is? He's exalted, and yet he chooses to humble himself and draw near to his people. Solomon's prayer is suggesting and we see that this is just a shadow of, of good things to come, but we see the fullness of that in the, when we get to the New Testament, where the eternal Son of God, who has no beginning and end, very God of very God, comes down to dwell in our midst. Isn't that how the prologue to John's Gospel describes it, John 1.14? And the Word, the eternal Son of God, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt, and that word dwelt is tabernacle, took up his tent. And it is an allusion to the precursor to the temple, the tabernacle or the tent, which was the sacred, uh, which was the symbol of God's sacred presence among his people pre-temple. Okay? So in his incarnation, Jesus took up his tent, as it were, and, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, at the beginning of this chapter, God's glory and his cloud envelops the temple and fills the temple. But when the eternal Son of God becomes one of us, God's glory is incarnated in Jesus Christ. We see God in the person of Jesus. 
in Jesus Christ, God is coming down to us and coming as close as possible to us that he might bring us into a relationship with himself. In the incarnation, God the Son draws near that he might bring us to God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We have here a foretaste and an inkling then of the incarnation. And that means when you're, when you're tempted to feel God is aloof, far, far away, indifferent, reluctant to answer prayer, uh, when you feel that way, remember the incarnation. The incarnation bears witness that God wants to draw near. He is Emmanuel, God with us. There is a temptation, right, to interpret setbacks as an indication that God's far. So when he doesn't answer prayer, perhaps, or things don't go the way that we want them to go. And sometimes we even offer prayers that we think are firmly in line with God's will. We think this is God's will, it's in line with scripture, I'm praying this, and yet God didn't answer it. And we can be tempted in moments like that to interpret God's non-response or setbacks as, okay, he's aloof and indifferent. And when we're tempted to feel that way, we need to look at the incarnate Christ. The eternal son of God lowered himself, came in our midst that he might draw us to God. Because of the incarnation, we know that God wants to be near to us, that he hears our prayers, as Solomon prays, that he hears our prayers, and he is our God and walks with us in this life. God is exalted, but he draws near to his people. Finally, third thing, God is compassionate. Here we get to the body of the prayer. Again, it's striking that on this festive occasion, when the temple is being dedicated, really the heart of the prayer is about sin. It's about how Israel will in fact mess up uh, and God's curses will come upon her. And yet, Lord, be gracious to us on the other side of that. Uh, You see this several times. And all of these instances reflect the compassion of God. But before we look at that, I want you to notice something. Interspersed in all of this, at verse 41 through 43, uh, interesting passage. I I hope you caught this as we were reading it. The assumption is that Gentiles, non-Jews, outsiders, are going to hear about the glory of God, the greatness of his name and his works, and they're going to stream into Jerusalem and to the temple to draw near to this great God. And Solomon prays that God would hear their prayers so he would be exalted among the nations. Jesus in the gospel says that the temple was meant to be a place of prayer for all nations. That thought doesn't originate with Jesus. That's firmly anchored and rooted in the Old Testament. But notice that God's people in every age are to be a people who are not simply looking inward. How can we do well? How can we grow? God's people in every age are to be looking outward. They ought to have a zeal for those who are very far away from the Lord to be brought near to the Lord. When you love God and you are zealous for his glory, then the opposite side of the coin is you want to see outsiders brought in. You want to see more and more of this creation, and specifically humanity, exalting his name. Where there is a heart for the glory of God, there's going to be a heart for evangelism. We should be a a people who are passionate to see people coming to God and knowing God. So Solomon expects that people will be streaming into Jerusalem. And he prays that the Lord would attend to their prayers, that they would know that he is the Lord and that the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, would be exalted among the nations. Now let's go back to this idea of uh, Israel's sin. Did you guys catch that when we were reading it? 
that when your people sin, if they sin against you, verse 46, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry, they go into exile. Uh, Solomon talks about all these terrible things that are, uh, can happen and in fact will happen when Israel sins. She will be defeated by her enemies. There will be a drought. There won't rain. There will be famine. There will be pestilence. Indeed, there will be exile. Is this, where, where's this all coming from? Is this just Solomon's uh, imagination run wild? Where's he getting this? Of course, Sol Solomon has the law. He has Deuteronomy. He knows exactly what God has said about what will happen to Israel if she's faithless to the Lord. And Solomon also knows, and there are hints in Deuteronomy, that even though God calls Israel to be faithful, Israel is Israel. And she will indeed incur the covenant curses. Israel won't remain faithful to Yahweh. The, the drought will come, the rain will stop. Indeed, we'll see the, all of these even in the book of Kings. Uh, pestilence will come, defeat at the hands of her enemies will come, and finally exile. When the people of God are carted off into captivity, far from home, far from the te temple. And Solomon says, when this happens, it will happen. When it happens, Lord, even then, when in their anguish your people cry out to you and turn back to you, hear them, forgive them, and restore them. And he, and he does this again and again in this passage. Lord, they will sin. The drought's coming, exile's coming. But when they cry out to you, when they turn to the temple, where the temple was, and they cry out, God, hear their prayer. Forgive them and restore them. Here's what Solomon is saying. Uh, when we sin, God is always the most offended party. Wh whatever sin we commit, whether we steal or lie or give way to lust, whatever it is, be underneath every sin is a personal rejection against the Lord. We are saying, I, you are not going to be my king. I'm going to live my life how I want to live. It's a repudiation of God. Every sin is fundamentally a, 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 an offense against God, regardless of what other horizontal misery it creates. But even though sin is an offense against God, he's also our only hope. He's also our only way out of sin. And Solomon is saying, when we mess up, when we blow it, when we fail in the mission that you've given to us, God, won't you find us there in the ruins when our life is a smoking crater when through our foolish disobedience we've blown it up and we've messed up as your people, won't your grace descend even to those depths so that you'll bring us back up again? Solomon is not shy about the destructive consequences of sin. Sin is a wrecking ball. It destroys life. It destroys relationship, health, finances, and fundamentally our relationship with the Lord. And yet, Solomon says, even when the wrecking ball of sin destroys everything and we find ourselves in captivity, could your compassion be so great that it'll find us even, even there in the place of captivity and bring us back? In other words, there is hope for people who have rebelled against the Lord and have destroyed their lives. There is hope for anyone who comes before the Lord and says, Lord, help. Anyone who turns to the Lord in repentance and cries out and says, God, help me. Solomon is saying there is hope for that person. There is hope for that man. There is hope for that woman. That means if you're here this morning and you've blown up your life through foolish and sinful choices, 
Uh, you look around and you see the wreckage relationally and in other ways. Solomon's prayer teaches you that you're not beyond hope. Turn to God. And so great is his compassion that there is forgiveness and indeed restoration for you. You don't have to spend the rest of your days paralyzed with guilt, you know, looking back to the past and thinking, if only I hadn't done that. With God, there is forgiveness. With God, there is restoration. I was watching a sports documentary not long ago, and there was an athlete that was being interviewed, and he was asked about a pivotal moment in a pivotal game. End of the game, basketball player, so the end of the game, uh, it was one of those situations where they have a chance to win if they can score the, the basket. And the coach gathers all the players together and he says, okay, we're going to give it to this other guy. The guy being interviewed was incensed because he thought he should be the one who has the right to shoot it. And he throws a little temper tantrum. He says, I'm not going on, I'm not going on the court. I'm going to stay here. Um, now, this happened years before he was inter you know, being interviewed. And then he says, yeah, he's reflecting on it. Yeah, that wasn't good. I mean, I shouldn't have done, that was not the right way to handle that. And I was like, okay, good. Right, there's, there's awareness, okay, growth. And then he said something what I, that I found contradictory and shocking. He said, but I wouldn't change it. What? Right? It was a terrible thing I did. I shouldn't have done that. I wouldn't change it. Does that compute? Does that, does that make sense to you? I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. But you hear this kind of thing, right? Yeah, I've, I've made some choices in, in my life, and yeah, weren't the best choices, but you know what? I wouldn't change anything. Really? There's a lot of things that change. Uh, you know, a, a do-over would be nice in a few key occasions, right? I mean, I think it, we, could, we would all say this. So what, what drives that? Yeah, I've, I've made terrible choices, but I wouldn't change anything. What drives that? I mean, in my estimation, it seems to be a, a kind of self-deception. Like, it's too painful to admit life would be much better for me if I hadn't done that. My life would be considerably better in so many ways if I had acted wisely and not foolishly in those occasions. For many people, that's just too difficult of a statement, right? To recognize that your life isn't what it could have been. That's painful. And so what do we do? Self-deception, rationalization, we explain it away. It wasn't that bad. That's one misguided response to our failures. The other is to be paralyzed by guilt. To see that, no, it really was that bad. I really am that terrible, and you can't move on from it. It haunts you the rest of your life. You live in the shadow of your past failures, right? You hobble to the grave. All of your joy is sapped by recognition of that failure. Those are two worldly, unbelieving ways to respond to failure. But Solomon gives us a third way. We don't minimize the sin and the failure. He doesn't do that. But we do maximize the grace and compassion of God. He's the kind of God who forgives sinners and takes the broken pieces of our lives and puts them back together. That's who God is. And when you take your sins and failures to that God, there is both forgiveness and increasing restoration. You know what that means? That means you can leave the past in the past. The grace of God takes care of that. There is forgiveness. You can't undo anything, but his grace covers that. When you recognize that, that should liberate you to live energetically, freely, confidently, joyfully in the present. What does Paul say in Philippians 3? I forget what's behind me. I don't get hung up on what's, the, what's past. What's past is past. But one thing I know, I run uh, the race towards what's in front of me. 
right? I look at God's will for me and I pursue that hard. You can have that kind of freedom and energy to pursue the will of God when you understand what Solomon is saying here, that God is compassionate. Even when you've blown it, your life is a smoking crater. Is there mercy for people like that? Yes. Those who cry out to the Lord will find forgiveness and restoration when they look to the temple. Did you catch that? When they turn toward the temple, for the temple. The crucial thing is not the posture, right? The temple is God's way of approaching him. The temple is a foretaste, as I've already suggested, of Jesus Christ. He says as much in John 2, that his body is the temple. In him, the presence of God dwells truly and fully. He is God incarnate. So what does it mean to come to God through the temple? It means to come to God through Jesus. It's significant that at the cross, as Jesus is being crucified, the temple curtain is torn in two. And one thing that's been communicated is that the old order with the physical temple is done. The temple was the place where sacrifices were offered again and again and again and again. The book of Hebrews says the reason they were offered again and again is because they never really dealt with sin. If you have one sacrifice that really takes it away for all time, you don't need another one. The fact that it's repeated shows that the problem of sin has not been addressed. Jesus died once, rose again, and now no further sacrifices are needed. It is finished. The temple is done. The true temple has come. The ultimate sacrifice has been offered. Sin, the sin of God's people who trust in Jesus, has been canceled. Want to know what to do with your past? You bring it to the cross. You recognize that that perfect once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ covers all of it. The guilt has been taken away, and through his Holy Spirit, he is beginning to restore and renew life. Jesus is what enables us to look at the worst about ourselves and not despair, but have hope. His blood covers it. And knowing that we live, as Jonathan Edwards uh, put it in his resolutions, while I live, I resolve to live with all my might. Well, how can you live with all your might? You can live with all your might when you understand that your sins have been covered, that you have peace with God, that you have been freed from the tyranny of past failures so that you can be faithful to God in the present. And may God help us to do that more and more and walk in that gospel freedom. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if your word didn't tell us just how deep and how radical your compassion and grace uh, are, we couldn't believe it, Lord. But we thank you that you have borne witness to us, that you that your grace goes even deeper than our worst failures, that there's hope for all of us in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that wherever we happen to be this morning, we would all run uh, to Christ and find relief from our sins in him. Amen.